Here we are, August the 24th, 2014, lecture discussion number 166 on the book of Romans. That's appropriate. You'll find out later. First order of business that I have is we had uh, equipment failure on the August 17th, number 165 lecture, and um, the uh, page 13 went unrecorded. So I have to reinstall it in its proper place uh, here today somehow before we can continue into the big pile that's waiting for us. Uh, you remember our plan or my plan, you, you, those of you who think I don't have a plan. The plan is to get to Jacob's limp. Uh, be, that's my primary objective because of Romans 9, uh, what it means and how it couples to Mo- Moses' circum- circumcision crisis and Joshua's experience with the commander of the army of the Lord at the Battle of Jericho. Uh, Eventually, ultimately, that becomes Joshua's crisis. And so quickly you'll ask, is the the limp of Jacob somehow a crisis, since that it is so easily connected to the crisis of Moses and the crisis of Joshua? Uh, Other people think Moses had a different crisis uh, with regard to entering the promised land. As you know, I don't uh, accept that view. So that's what we're trying to do, and we add to that, uh, we're adding to Jacob's uh, limp uh, the extraordinary, the very complex account here in Joshua 7 of Achan and the robe and the 36 dead. And if you've missed any of that, um, feel free to try to read it while I keep moving here. This is where many, many important things happen, fascinating things in my view, uh, very difficult to understand things, and that's why I like it so much, I think. We have this, and I'm going to phrase it this way purposely, the issue is, uh, what is the meaning of the beautiful garment? I have Achan, I have 36 dead, and I have a beautiful Garment. And that's, I think, well, all three of them are very difficult to understand. Aiken, the extraordinarily complex figure, 36 dead, their meaning, and the, the meaning of the beautiful garment. I, and I ask the question that way purposely to lead you uh, to the symbolism that it is. It is a leading question, or at least I'm hoping that it is. It's supposed to be. So when I ask you, if God calls something a beautiful garment, let me reword it. If God calls something a beautiful covering, what do you think he's talking about? What, what's the first thought? that If I say to you that God is going to give you a beautiful covering, what is it? Yes, it's the blood of Christ. It's salvation. That should be your first thought as to what he's referring to. So when I see beautiful garment here in Joshua 7, I must immediately say to myself, is this a symbol of the blood of Christ. And Achan, what does he do with this beautiful garment? He buries it, hides it. Uh, now, I'll skip ahead of myself just because it's fun. I should get every, let's see, uh, page 12, I'll repeat it when I get there. What else is hidden in Scripture? Where's the New Testament compliment of hiding or burying a beautiful garment? Think that through. But anyway, he buries it in his tent. And the nation, the consequence of that is the nation of Israel does not see the beautiful garment. And they don't get to see it until the two messengers or the two witnesses, make it what you will, bring it, go in and run into the tent and find it and bring it out and lay it before the, uh, the Lord, the commander of the army of the Lord. They lay it in front of him. And then that's when the Israel, the nation of Israel finally sees it. Up to that point, they only heard that it existed, but they had not seen it. Now they know it exists. And this beautiful king's garment covering is clearly presented as evidence, as proof of something. At least I intend to make that case. It is a fact of Scripture that God always, when you see a place that God has come in the Old Testament specifically, and does something powerful, uh, dramatic, uh, where there's consequences and judgment. Uh, that is a place where God is intervening to protect his plan of salvation or his symbols or types of himself and his 
the doctrine of Jesus Christ, is, you, if you will. He always protects his plan of salvation, his doctrine of Christ, always. If he did not do that, uh, then the plan of salvation would result in none being saved. I say that about the people who argue against eternal security. If you can throw off your own salvation, if we have that capacity, then no one would be saved. The plan of salvation would result in no one being saved in it. If God did not intervene, then the plan of salvation would likewise result in none being saved. And if that were true, if he has a plan of salvation where no one is saved, then what is he? What's the natural extension of that uh, position? The position becomes is that he lies about salvation. There really isn't any. It's a trick. And therefore, he's what? He's evil. A liar. Same thing. And he is intervening. He is coming here at Joshua 7. And that is a momentous event. You see, though Achan in this story, this true literal event, confesses fully, he nonetheless gets the death penalty, doesn't he? Physical death. And a heap of stones is covered over him. So what we're going to do is go throughout the Old Testament and find other places where people have heaps of stones put over them and compare them all. Why does he get this heap of stones over him? And obviously, Israel is in serious danger here in Joshua 7. Serious danger, and God must come and protect them. So uh, all of this now ties back into the, the robe. What is this robe? Question I'll ask now. Is the robe a portrayal of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Is that what it is? It's called a beautiful garment. If it is that, in other words, is it another amazing symbol of Christ? Uh, Just like the Ark of the Testimony, or you might call that the Ark of the Covenant. Same thing. And by the way, the Ark of the Covenant is very, or the Ark of the Testimony is very much prominent in all of Joshua 6, 7, and 8. It's it's always there. You find it in all three places. So you have to ask immediately, why is the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant being displayed in these chapters and it is simultaneously being displayed uh, with the beautiful garment? So I have these two symbols side by side in this passage and that makes me consider also Uzzah, Remember Uzzah, because he touches the Ark of the Covenant and he has a physical death penalty for doing so. I have Achan and the beautiful garment and a physical death penalty for doing so. Are these two symbols, uh, should I look at them side by side, put them together? This is Second Samuel uh, uh, 6, for those of you who are wanting to know where Uzzah is in the touching of the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. I also have these dead 36. What's the obvious question for that? Who are these 36? Why were they the ones that died? Do they show up anywhere else in the passage? If you were here last week, you know that I made that case, that they do indeed show up in the passage. I'm going to continue that as well. And now we've caught up somewhat. Uh, the, the interneters are happy. That was page 13 of Lecture 165. So that's now back into the record, and it's been restored to its place. And now I can go on to uh, Lecture 166 without all the emails and fear of retribution. Okay. Now we start. Whenever I bring up Aiken and the dead 36... Whenever I bring it up, the first question I used to get, especially from the high school students, is they love to talk about the biblical numerology of the number 36. We have some people that listen to me and that are very much into the biblical aspect of numerology, and um, and they are asking me to do things like this a lot. And I don't always. I very seldom, as a matter of fact. I like to make the case that the dead 36 are directly connected to the stealing and the hiding of the beautiful garment just logically, just by looking at the text and being able to figure that out by simple reasoning. 
I made the point last week that the Dead 36 knew Aiken's plan. They were involved in Aiken's plan. They conspired with Aiken to put the plan into motion. That they're the ones that lie to uh, Joshua, or some of in, some of the ones in the Dead 36 definitely lied to Joshua. I believe that they were the ones who deceived Joshua about the battle that resulted in their death. They were killed as a consequence of their direct, intimate connection to the taking of the dedicated thing that ultimately becomes the beautiful garment. They knew about the hiding place, and they aided in its theft. That was pretty much summarizes last week's lecture. In other words, they became accursed because of what they did. And I've been making that case apart from the numerology. I think it can be done logically, as I said, and that's why I initiated that side of it. I didn't look at what the number 36, or I didn't do that, the, uh, that aspect of the number 36. And I did it that way because I think the reasoning is sound as opposed to the position that Aiken, what's the other position? Do you remember? The other position is, is that Aiken's children were the, were involved. They're the deceivers, even though Aiken cannot be 40 years old. He must be less than. And his children, therefore, would be, uh, if, I, if I'm right, Aiken's barely in his 30s. If that, that would be the most mathematical prominent position. And his children, how many he had, would be very young children. And I think the Aiken children view is, is insulting to God. It's absurd. That position says that God ordered the execution of the children. And if you weren't here for lecture 165, if you missed that part, part uh, I ask you to, to go ahead and, and get that off of the Internet. I think you'll find it uh, interesting, if, uh, if not compelling. So I don't accept that position, and that leaves me with the uh, Dead 36 view, and I think that's the one that has the most merit. And uh, what I'm trying to do with that is tell you also at the same time, simultaneously, tell yourself to choose the position that is the most honoring. You see these two contrasting views. One says God killed small children because they helped bury the, the accursed thing. That's just ridiculous. What is that saying about the character of God? The other one said, no, it has something to do with the 36. Choose the one that is the most honoring to the commander of the Lord's army. This is Christ here, the angel of the Lord. Choose the Christ-honoring view. Throw out the disrespectful view. Do it every time. Even though in your commentaries, in every Bible, probably in this room today, uh, all of them will have uh, the, the children were conspiring with Achan and God had to kill them for that. That's the overwhelming position. Don't follow the crowd. Pick the one that is the most honoring, the one that holds Christ in awe, the highest view, view of Christ. That's the one that will always stand. That's the, the other, the irreverent one, will always collapse as soon as you start to examine it and question it. And why is it that uh, almost all of those views have such power in the church today? See, that's a, the applicational part. Why does why do the churches today choose these views that portray God as capricious, violent, nasty, frankly, arbitrary, killing children? They, they do it, they, they, by the way, it's seized upon by the, um, the atheistic community. They say, listen, look at your God. He kills children that uh, helped a father steal a robe. That's your God. We don't even do that in our municipal court system. Humanity is superior to God. That's ultimately what they do. And the reason they get that position is because the church teaches it. Sadly, it's idiocy. It's a miracle that anybody is saved. If you find yourself siding with those who mock and sneer at God, uh, if you're siding with those who uh, accuse God of being evil, you should reconsider immediately, quickly. You're wrong. I'll just say it as bluntly as I can. If you read chapter 7 of Joshua and you conclude that God ordered the execution of the children of Achan, my goodness, reconsider. Okay, because it's important, we're going to look at this number 36.
Aren't you glad you came today? Right, that sound you hear right now is everyone on the internet switching to a different lecture. <laughs> Before I do that, you should already know what the numerology will conclude, won't, shouldn't you? The numerology will come onto the side of the highest view of Christ. See, Will it strengthen the dead 36 interpretation of Joshua 7? Or will it in any way provide a shoring uh, for the argument uh, for those who say that God killed the children of Achan? Which one will happen? Which It should be obvious to you. My point is you shouldn't need the numerology. You should always search for it, if you will, look at the evidence. But you shouldn't need it. You should know instinctively. You know the character of God, the nature of his goodness. The goodness of God, that should lead you to the correct answer every time. And, and before I start this, I'm going to admit uh, that the biblical mathematics is often abused. There was a guy that, um, um, equidistant letter sequencing. I, if, I don't know if you bought one of those books, but you got cheated. And just pure nonsense. Is there equidistant uh, letter uh, uh, is there hidden codes in the Bible with regard to the first letter of each sentence? Uh, yes, there are true Torah codes. But somebody uh, who had a very limited understanding of mathematics uh, went and found all kinds of stuff, and none of it is true. All, a basic course in good grief. Just take one course, and, and it. Uh, you notice you don't hear those books anymore. They've been completely debunked. So, this is an abused thing. I know that. And scholars are often manipulate the numbers to fit a predisposed position, something that's agenda-based. In other words, the, an outcome is decided upon first, and, and then the numerics are utilized to support the predetermined premise. That's quite common. Having conceded that that is quite common, nonetheless, numbers in Scripture is, are greatly significant. You know it's true. God is... Uh, he loves mathematics. He's mathematical. Seven, for example. God uses the number seven. It's in his creation pattern. It's his feast day pattern. It's his Passover pattern. You know that 12 is greatly significant to God. He has the 12 uh, uh, tribes of Israel, for example, uh, one of many of the 12s. The number 10, the Ten Commandments, he emphasizes that, just to name a couple right off the bat. You have three, four, five, and eight, forty, fifty, and one fifty-three. And of course, what? If there is a number that God is known for in the Bible, what number is it? I can ask anybody. I say, give me a number that God is a biblical number that you are aware of, and that number will always come back to me as six, six, six. We have all kinds of people that tattoo that on themselves now. They think that's a good idea. But all of those numbers that I rattled off prior to that are very studied. And again, clearly God is mathematical, and the very wise realize this as they read his word. There is no detail that is insignificant in Scripture. Uh, there's nothing that is to be overlooked. Everything has a purpose. So when you come across these 36 dead in the, in the seventh chapter of Joshua, what should you do? You should stop and go like I try to make you do. Why 36? Why not 35? Why not 37? It's not. It's 36. It's not insignificant. The 36 dead is to be considered. It needs to be evaluated and assessed with care. Obviously, this number 36 has been put here for a reason. That makes it evidence. It's going to help me solve the meaning of the beautiful covering or the beautiful robe. It's going to help me understand what happened. It will certainly answer the question, did the children deserve to be executed for burying a robe at age 8? For those who might think that position has merit. And that's a point, by the way, I fail to make often enough. The evidence that is in Scripture. The Christologies, the Christophanies, the types of Christ 
in the Old Testament. Those are the purpose. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. They, they're proofs. People will ask me all the time, how do you know the Bible is literally true? And I say, well, because it is a testimony of Christ on every single page. And when you recognize that, you know, okay, this couldn't have been put together by a human being and have that kind of capability. These are proofs. They're evidence that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and therefore they are attestations that he will fulfill his promises. And that's important to us because one of his promises is is that he says, I am God in the flesh. And I will give eternal life to those who believe in my name. That's what he says, one of his promises. And he puts proofs of, of who he is and what he thinks and how he thinks and his character in the Old Testament and these tremendous pictures and portrayals, portraits. And, and the whole book is filled with them, filled to the brim with proofs. So 36 dead, those, that's going to be evidence. That's going to be proof of something. It's going to help us understand the uh, robe, as I said. It's going to help us understand Aiken's um, motive and plan. It's going to help us understand all of these processes that have happened so far in this story. And now eventually we go to Joshua 8 to finally put it in its real position. Okay, 36. What does it mean? Why 36 dead Israeli soldiers at Joshua 7? Well, we'll start out with this. This is the easy part. This is where we have to wake everybody up for five minutes, and then we can, I'll give you time to wake up. Okay, here we go. One plus two plus three plus four plus five plus six plus seven plus eight. You continue in your head. Plus nine plus ten plus eleven plus twelve plus... All the way up. I keep adding all of this. I add now. I'm up to 30, right? Plus 8, plus 9, plus 10, plus 20, plus 21, plus 22, plus 23. I'll get all the way to 30. Plus 31, plus 32, plus 33, plus 34. Somebody's got his calculator going. Plus 35, plus 36. In other words, the sum of the numbers up to 36. What does it equal? It equals... 666. That's not an accident. I've now begun to learn something about the 36 dead. By the way, that's the sum of the numbers of what device in Las Vegas? A roulette wheel. Just in case you think you're going to win at that. It's a joke. There is an obvious and intrinsic relationship between 36 and 666. Just by this, I have three sixes, if you will. Three sixes. You'll see that done a lot in the Bible. Just by noticing, and again, I don't need it. I should expect that there's going to be a relationship between 36 dead and 666 because God shows up at Joshua 7 and gets involved and stops something from happening. That's all I need to know. Just by noticing that God intervenes so strongly. Thus, there's something really evil in Jericho. Something very evil is happening and the king of Jericho is very evil. Therefore, the plan of the 36, if I'm correct, is what? Is evil. There's got to be great evil at Joshua 7. We need to figure out what that evil was, what it is, and how it's being manifested there. Okay? Here's where it's going to get boring. What do you mean, it's going to get? Can I erase some of this? I hope I can. 36 is a triangular number. What that means is, is that it forms a triangular pattern or a dot pattern. Obviously, one is a triangular number. Three is a triangular number. You can... Uh, I got it out of rat rack here. I'm going to get it back where it goes. I'm not good at this. Oh, I made too many of them. There we go. Numbers that the sum of the dots add up to the number is a triangular number. 
3, 6, 10, 15, 21 are triangular numbers. Ah. Fifteen, twenty-one, ten, and so thirty-six is both a square. The six squared is equal thirty-six and triangular. Now, do you, everybody remember what prime numbers are when you went to school? Prime number is a number that is divisible by itself and one. There are 11 prime numbers in the numbers to 36. Just for now, just remember that 15, 21 are triangular. There are 11 prime numbers. If I took out all the prime numbers as I counted up to 36, there would be 11 of them. And therefore... In uh, 666, the number of prime, prime numbers are, is going to be 121. It's going to be 11 squared. 11 squared is equal to 121. The square root of 121 is 11. Uh, 36 is the sum of these two prime numbers, 15 and 21. If I square 15, 15 squared plus 21 squared, what do you think I get? 666. Very good. So all of these facets of 36 and 666 come together. Carbon 12. You heard me talking about carbon 12. Carbon 12 is the basic element in the physical reality. How many electrons does it have? It has six. How many protons does it have? It has six. How many neutrons does it have? It has six. Carbon-12 and physical reality. And 666. People have noticed these things for many, many years. And obviously I could go on with this kind of stuff all day. But for today I'm, I'm, I'm illustrating to you that 666 is the number of the evil. Not a evil or any evil. But the evil, 666, is the number of the evil. And Christ, of course, refers to it, not the number 666, but he refers to the evil directly. He calls somebody the evil one. So, for today, you can go do 36 and 666 all you want. I just wanted to get you started if it's something you like to do. Wisdom is understanding that 666, recognizing 666 when it's evidence. And 36 is very, very close to 666. So when I come across 36 dead men, I know that I'm looking at great evil. And it makes sense to me because God is there dealing with it. And we should have expected that. And if you read the... the uh, Text again, start looking for the evil and the, the great evil. The first place you see it is when, the, when somebody comes to Joshua and lies to him about how many men should go and fight and how many men are in that particular city. They lie about there's just a few when there's really 15,000. There's a Nephilimic element involved there, the giant element, giganticism. So somebody lies to Joshua. There's this deception. There's a plan here. And there's great consequence because of it. And God himself comes in person, if you want to think of it that way. And he, he has a warning. He knows that great evil is in Jericho. That's why he's come to Jericho finally to end it. The great wickedness. And if Israel falls prey to the evil, it will be slain by its enemies. That's what he says to them. So what does the evil seek to do? becomes ultimately the question. What's the plan of the evil? Who is the evil? Eventually, the evil is who? Is the Antichrist. I'm going to say to you, the evil already is on the, is in the environment, if you will. The evil exists. It has for quite some time. And the evil will attempt 
he will mostly succeed to deceive Israel to worship him instead of the true Christ. He will get Israel to worship him instead of Christ. Christ is both God of Israel and the Messiah of Israel. The the evil is not God. He is not the Messiah. What is he? He is a carbon-12-based physical person with a spiritual component, obviously. Anyway, my point is that the 36 dead are the ones that lied to Joshua. I made that point last week. And their plan with Achan was to deceive the nation of Israel. And God stopped them. And I think it becomes obvious that Achan's children had nothing to do with it. And they would not have been uh, executed. I'll, I'll make that case further next week when I get into the core rebellion. So the question left for the children of Israel is, why did they witness the death of their father? Why were they taken there and they witnessed the death? He's the one who confessed. Now, by the way, I have 36 dead plus who? Plus Achan. Oh, that's kind of cool, because that makes what? 37. So not only do I have to look at 36, which I think very quickly you will find that 36 is intrinsically or intricately tied to closely demonstrate 666. Now you have to solve why 37. What's going on? Is a grandchild running amok in the church again this week? That happens every week now. We need to find those grandparents. Who could they be? Pretty soon he'll come up on stage. And when he does, what will we do? That's right. We'll give him the microphone. Let him go. So you start dressing him in a suit, Lindsay Bell. Okay, why 37? What does 37 mean? And perhaps that will explain things. If 36 is is three sixes, if 36 is 666 which I think the case is strongly made, then 3-7 would be what? If 36 is three sixes, 37 would be what? Three sevens. And seven is a pretty special uh, number to God. Uh, Just as an aside, in Daniel, Daniel 12, we have the 1260 days, we have the 1290 days, right? And we have the blessing of the 1335th day. That's, those are three numbers in Daniel that are very valuable to understand. If I add those three numbers up, what do I get? Quickly do it in your head. I get 3885. Guess what that is? That's divisible if the the factors are going to be 37 times uh, 7 times 5 times 3 equals the addition of the 1260, 1290, and 1335. The numerologists love this stuff. We, uh, Bill the Cow and I, uh, I can't remember his name other than to say Dave, uh, remember Dave, but I wouldn't use his last name. Anyway, Dave, when he goes through the Bible, he pounds this because he recognizes that there are clues in these numbers and he wants to know what those clues are. Now, you can drive yourself crazy doing this, but 7, 5, and 3, those numbers, 3 sevens is a godly number. That's a triunity number. Seven, five, and three is perfection and grace and sanctification and salvation. So Achan has this 37 attached to him. And that's amazing. It's associated with Achan. Remember, Joshua says to Achan, My son, I beg you to... Give glory to the Lord God and confess to him, Joshua seven nineteen. And Achan does it. He confesses as beautifully and as perfectly and as completely as a human being could. He does it. And that glorifies God. I've said all the time, how is it that Achan's confession glorifies God? How so? 
Okay? So that, that's the basic numerology of the 36 dead. Now, which side does it come on? Does it come on God killed the children's side, or does it come on that the 36 dead are evil? Okay? It be, becomes obvious, I think. And now, uh, that should keep you going where you need to go for a while. I'll, I'll mess around with it a little bit more next week, but I know that I've extended the life of it as far as I can before people drool and collapse. I need to throw some uh, time quickly at Joshua 7, uh, 5 through 9. So let's, or, yes, Joshua 7, 5 through 9. I wrote 6 here, but let me change that in case somebody ever finds it and thinks I'm an idiot. I worry about things like that. They'll go through my papers and go, good grief. This guy didn't get anything right. So I try to make my case as best I can for posterity. Here we are. Uh, Joshua chapter 5, or chapter 7, sorry, verse 5 through 9. Let me read it again. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men. And they chased them from before the gates as far as Shabaram and struck them down on the descent. That, by the way, isn't, that's not a, a, uh, uh, insignificant detail. Struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. The people were in a total despair when they found this out. So now, that's the 36 are killed. And the people are in despair. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark. So now the ark's back here. Of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Why have you done this? Is this the reason? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off your name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? (coughs) If you read... Numbers 14, and I don't have time to do it today. Ah, maybe I should. Remember, Joshua came back with Caleb, right? And uh, the people weren't going to go into the promised land. So Joshua knows, personally experiences. He's one of the only Caleb and him were there. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. Numbers 14. And the people wept that night. Almost the same. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. Or if only we had died in this wilderness. That was a little prophetic. They didn't know that. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it have not been better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. It's almost identical. What Joshua says and what was said in Numbers 14 is almost identical. And, And essentially the accusation is the same. So I have 36 dead, and Israel is panic-stricken, and Joshua repeats the accusation of Numbers 14 uh, at Joshua 7, 5 through 9. And, and you have to kind of wrap your head around that a little bit. What's he thinking? And again, Joshua witnessed that at Numbers 14. He and Caleb. Ultimately, what is said in that accusation, let me paraphrase it. Uh, Why, God, did you bring us here just to kill us? That's what is said in both places. What's that that saying about the character of God? That uh, That is, God is a lying, evil God. This has all been a trick. I'm going to bring you out here. We're going to string you along, give you a couple of victories, and then we're going to let you get killed. That'll be great fun. God is evil. Joshua says that. 
Joshua says that. And he's saying it essentially to the face of God. Start looking around. Ask yourself, when did Christ come, the commander with the sword of the army of the Lord? When did Christ come? And did he hang around or did he leave? Is he still there? Let's look at what he says. Why did you bring us here? We should have stayed on the other side of the Jordan. Or if you want, we should have died in the wilderness. Why did you bring us here just to be slaughtered by their enemies? Our women and children all slaughtered. We should have stayed in Egypt. The two premises are the same. What shall I say to the enemies when they hear that we have been surrounded and slaughtered to the last man, woman, and child? That's what Joshua has said. What will happen when that happens to us? You won't protect us. This has all been a trick. We're all going to die. What's he thinking? I'm going to say it's a lot deeper than, than physical death. Because if God is a liar about physical death, then he's a liar about what? Other promise. Eternal life. Resurrection. See, is Joshua saying to him, there is no resurrection. This was, there is no eternal life. There is no hope. Your promise is not valid. We're just going to come out here on some big silly journey and you're going to kill us all in the wilderness and we're all going to cease to exist. I don't think you can conclude anything else. See, and how does this now connect to the beautiful garment? And I call it a beautiful garment. I'm trying to get you to think of it that way. It's, uh, by the way, the, the Bible does not say it's a Babylonian. People tell me all the time, well, the Bible said it was a Babylonian garment. No, it doesn't. Don't make that mistake. The Bible never says it's a Babylonian garment. Who says it's a... The Bible records that somebody said it was a Babylonian gar- garment. That's just a point of, of, uh, that's me forgetting where my place is. How does what Joshua says about God, how does that connect to the beautiful garment? Because I think the beautiful garment, when you begin to look at it properly and see that it is proof of something, it is physical evidence. It is something that is now seen. And it becomes proof. It's important that everybody see it. That it's laid out before God and that the entire nation of Israel knows it exists. It wouldn't be, it's not unlike, by the way, um, if we were today to find the Ark of Noah, which you know people have looked for for centuries. Uh, it would be very similar to finding the Ten Commandment tablets, the jar of manna, the rod of Aaron, the Ark of the Covenant. If those things were to all of a sudden be found and seen, it would have a dramatic impact on who? Would it have a dramatic impact on the unbelieving? No. Who would have the impact? The believing would. It would be, we would celebrate. So, if you were on the other side and you happened to find the ten stone tablets written by God's finger himself, and you found the Ark of the Covenant, and you found uh, any of those things, if you found this beautiful covering, and you were atheistic or agnostic or evolutionary or monist, whatever term you wish, reductionist, materialist, whichever one you want to be, um, what would be your motivation? The last thing you would do is bring it to a church. You would bury it, hide it, wouldn't you? Let me repeat. Where is something else buried in the New Testament and God responds badly? Hmm? The talent is absolutely right. We'll get to that next week as well.
See, this, what, what Joshua is doing is helps us understand why the robe was hidden from Israel. God spoke. He said, there is something in Jericho. Don't take it. And everybody heard. And the people who found it hid it and then lied to Joshua. And no one saw it until the 36 were dead and Achan was broken and and they went and brought it out. And finally, it was shown. But while it was not found, uh, what did the nation of Israel conclude? They always conclude the same thing. How long does it take them to conclude it? While God is talking to Moses on the mountain, what did the nation of Israel do? They, they built a cow's, a cow baby. And they decided that was a great idea. This is the second generation. They are a great generation. Don't misunderstand me. But we're fragile human beings. How fast did it spread through the nation of Israel that nothing was found in there? And if you concluded that nothing was found, then the obvious question that goes in everybody's mind is that God is mistaken or he outright lied about it. Either one is horrible. If God is mistaken, he is not omniscient. And if he is lying, then he is evil. Eventually, both become God is evil, but that's for another day. But now the 36 are dead. And they immediately leap. Joshua leaps. That's my evidence that all of them did. If this is Joshua, the leader of the, of the, who has seen all these amazing things, he leaps to this, and, and all of a sudden, when 36 are dead, they conclude this is a trick. We're all doomed. God is evil. Blah, blah, blah. There's no resurrection. There's no eternal life. We should have died in the wilderness. We should have died in Egypt. Blah, blah, blah. There's no proof. The Canaanites are going to hear God is a liar. All of us are going to die. There aren't any survivors, all of our kids. And then what are you going to do, God? What are you going to say now? Sob, sob, sob. And this hysteria, this is hysteria, and it comes from who? It comes from Joshua. Who else does it come from? Yeah, there's your applicational sermon. It comes from me. If it comes from me, I'm very good at projection. So I assume that it comes from where else? It comes from you. It comes from us. So there we are in the story. We're the ones that are running around hysterical. Thirty-six evil men are dead. We don't even know they're evil. We're so doggone dumb. Thirty-six men who are threatening the The entire nation are gone, and we're hysterical in a panic, crying. We tear our clothes off. We say, God, you're intending to just kill me here. There is no resurrection. There is no proof. You were wrong about the Babylonian garment. If that, by the way, is a symbol of salvation, you're saying you're wrong about salvation. And we're all crying and complaining. And what does God say? Well, we can read it. Well, I'll ask this. Well, I'll read this first. So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie on your face? What's implied? Does he know the answer to the question, Why do you lie on your face? What's implied in the question? Of course he knows. He's omniscient. What's implied in the question? If I come to you and I know why you're lying on your face... And I ask you, why are you tearing your clothes? Why are you hysterically sobbing? Why are you throwing dirt all over yourselves? Why are you down on your face? Why do I ask you that question? Because the obvious reference, the rhetorical element here, is that there is no reason for you to do this at all. Get up. Why do you lie on your face? And why do, why is Joshua lying on his face? What made him panic like this? The dead 36. And that makes me ask, if Joshua can fall over 
36 dead men. How many Israelites do I have? I probably have an excess of 2 million. I have 36 dead soldiers out of 3,000. I asked this a few weeks ago. And Joshua is in a total hysterical doctrinal collapse where he is challenging God's character, telling him exactly what was said at Numbers 14, almost word for word, accusing him of wanting to bring them out to die in the wilderness and allowing them all to be slaughtered. What have Over 36 dead people, dead soldiers. That never made sense to me, especially when I could immediately figure out that these are the ones that lied. So what happened to Joshua? And it makes me ask, who else is involved in this? How did this get through to the elders of the nation? If you want to think of it as United, well, the United States Senate, they just cry and sob all the time anyway. If you want to find the 12 great leaders of this country, okay, we don't have that. Let's um, hypothetically concede to me that we have an intelligent political body somewhere and they panicked and cried and wept over 36 uh, rogue soldiers who ran off to do something that was evil, that was subversive. How did this get up to this high a level to where the elders of Israel... Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth before the ark of the Lord that evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. I have the most powerful men in the country who have the greatest amount of faith, and they are absolutely weeping mush. How does that happen? So I ask, who else is involved besides Achan? 36 are dead. How many were involved? How did Joshua get like this? What is the anatomy, the steps? can't be just this. It can't go from 36 dead to this total panic. It can't happen. It's got to spread. How long did it take to spread? Who's spreading it? What's the plan? Who's falling for it? Who's supposed to have all the wisdom and has none in the story? Joshua. Totally a wreck. How do you do that to him? To where he does this. And God says, why are you lying on your face? You have no reason. Get up. I'll fix it for you. What's interesting to me is that Joshua is like Jonah. This is humiliating. This story is humiliating to Joshua. What's he do? He writes it. Jonah did the same thing. Book of Jonah is humiliating to Jonah. He writes it. Moses wrote humiliating things about Moses. There's your applicational lesson. Next week, we will take another run at it.